brothers and sisters, welcome back to another episode of the podcast for the book Hopeless Romantic, The Untold History of Ethiopia. I'm really excited to finally getting this far in the book. Uh, this is one of the longest and one of my favorite chapters of the book. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, before we getting into all that, you guys know what time it is. Let's gather our thoughts for prayer and then we'll see what we have planned for today. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, I mean, holy, holy, holy is your name, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing us again for another episode of this podcast. Lord, I ask you that what we learn about today brings peace to our nation and gives some encouragement to the people that have lost uh, loved ones during this war. And we ask you this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in the intercession of the Virgin Mary, and the angels and the saints, we pray. Amen. Once again, um, I'm excited that we're we're here pushing strong, and um, I want to encourage everybody. By now, if you haven't bought the book, make sure to buy the book "Hopeless Romantic: The Untold History of Ethiopia." You can find it on Amazon, and make sure you know just read because you could get a lot of things out there. You'll see the bibliography. And um, all the cool images that I have on there. So just want to echo that one more time. Uh, if you haven't done so already, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dmuluna or Twitter at dawitmuluna6. Uh, once again, I want to take time to thank my patrons for supporting me. Honestly, I couldn't be able to do these type of projects without your support. And if you want to become a, a supporter and become a patron, you may do so by going to patreon.podbean.com forward slash Dawit Muluna. Again, that is patreon.podbean.com forward slash Dawit Muluna. Um, so like I said, I'm excited about this uh, this episode. I really am. Um, I suggest a lot of new material within this chapter. So, so far I've been telling you the things that are out there and just the historical facts, some very well known and documented and some not so much well known. But here is one of the first chapters that I really say, okay, this is my thoughts on everything. So I bring in uh, the historical um, data points. And then from there, I make several suggestions of what happened. Um, so this is a chapter called Don't Get It Twisted. And I've said it before. Uh, I'll repeat it again. Uh, this book is based on the love that exists between a husband and a wife. So this whole book, obviously, we've been talking about it is to say just like a husband loves uh, her, his wife. Um, uh, I believe we should love each other. Right. And uh, although, you know, couples might have fights throughout various points the fights doesn't define their relationship all this to say yes we might be going through hardship yes we might be fighting with one another but that shouldn't define us as a nation and really we should think about our overall history which i do think is beautiful however i've said it before and i'll say it again the fights do occur and from time to time it's important to kind of stop and say hey there is fights that happen in relationships and just like that we in our nation we had conflicts and fights so when i begin to say that i'm hopeless romantic i'm not delusional or i don't have unrealistic expectations again when it comes to marriages i've seen like even the best example of marriages 
that I've been exposed to that of my parents. I've seen them argue in fights. But again, they these fights and arguments did not define their relationship. Yes, conflict is a part of life. And the reality is that couples fight and some fight often. And yet, if their marriage is to succeed, they don't allow fights to define their relationship. In the book, I address uh, or I, I mention um, how Jay-Z cheated on Beyonce. And I'm a little late to the game. I didn't know this actually happened until much recently. But I was even more shocked to find out that the great queen Beyonce decided to stay with Jay-Z after the infidelity. Why? Because this affair did not define their marriage. Yes, it was a problem. Yes, it was an issue and it needed to be dealt with, but it did not define their marriage. The truth is that married couples who go through problems do, do not define their marriage based on the problems alone. Although not all issues lead to an affair, nearly all married couples have some sort of troubles here and there. And during those trials, the husband and wife do and say hurtful things to each other. We know this. I remember once I heard a preacher liken a marriage to a kingdom wherein two leaders were ruling the country. I mean, can you imagine the chaos that might ensue from such an event? But we know that most wars stem from two people or more fighting for the throne. And yet in marriage, two people are equally ruling over their own kingdom. That is their home. Obviously, several issues result from this, but married couples do not allow arguments to define their love, or at least they shouldn't. And these are the successful marriages that we see. Again, this is true for Ethiopia. Hardships and unfair events that have occurred do not define the country. We find many beautiful events like we've been talking about, but we also find several instances where people were fighting and just as when a married couple fights, at times historical figures did many hurtful things and said cruel words to people with hostility. Now, here's the point. These negative events are just as much as a part of our history as the positive ones. And it's important to say that we cannot ignore it as some people try to do. Now, people try to label me as being nationalistic and all this stuff. And no, I'm not. I don't think we can just ignore the problems we had previously. I don't think we are out here saying that Ethiopia has a perfect history. No, we must face it. And actually, this is the chapter where I'm going to be facing these challenges head on. But at the same time, we should not allow these negative stories to define our history. This is the key point. Yes, it's important to talk about the fights and the conflicts. But that alone shouldn't define the history. Just as the history of two couples include the good and the bad, so does the history of Ethiopia. Again, in this chapter, I will be presenting the bad events. We've talked about the good, but this is the bad events. Mostly the periods where Ethiopians were fighting with one another indeed. These events were not our proudest moments. Dare I say, some of them will even make you cringe. But as much as we may want to look away and act as if these events did not occur or they did not happen, there is no way around it. We have to admit the truth to ourselves, and yet these fights do not define our nation.
So, I mean, there's possibly, I, I, don't, I don't have enough time to list out all the disputes that ever occurred in history. It's just too many. But I will highlight some of the main events that I think shaped the history of Ethiopia, especially uh, with present-day conflicts that we see. So let's get to it. In uh, one of the first chapters, we dealt with the history of Aksu, uh, this great empire. And, 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 and unfortunately, for reasons that are still not very clear to scholars, this empire finally came to an end around the turn of the first millennium. Side note. You know, it's interesting, this term, first, the turn of the first millennium, uh, I've read it in, in various articles, and sometimes the turn of the first millennium is referring to 1000 BC or 1000 AD, and sometimes to refer to 1000 AD, they, turn, they say the turn of the second millennium, right? So is the first turning into the second or the second turning from the first? But at the end of the day, when I'm saying first, the turn of the first millennium, I want to be very clear and say I'm referring to year 1000 AD. Um, and different authors use different ways of representing that. So that's just a side note. Uh, one thing uh, that many have assumed, however, is that the Aksumites... Uh, or the people uh, after Aksumites, a, like a different group of ethnic uh, group assumed the throne of Ethiopia. So after the Aksumites ruled and the Aksum Empire kind of started falling down, a group from a different ethnic uh, society assumed the throne of Ethiopia. Now, this new group who took on the role of ruling the country were believed to have inhabited the northern and central Ethiopia during Aksum's reign. Because of the scarcity of sources available from this period, there's very little we can say about the group other than that they spoke the language of Ago. Now, stay with me here. This spoken language, which only a small portion of Ethiopia society speaks today, is part of the family of languages known as the Cushitic. For example, like the Oromo language is known as the Cushitic language, is a Cushitic uh, 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 um, origin. If you don't know what I mean by families of languages, let me explain because this is going to be important for our discussion. As we will see in just a minute, the developments of languages over a period of time can be a signal to how different societies interacted with each other in history. So let's say a little bit about languages and language families. Well, language families work very much like our family, like our actual physical family. In your house, there may be you and siblings and parents and you all consist of one family. Because you are related to your family members, you share more common traits with them, with them than you would with another set of relatives. You may have the same smile as your mom, but your eyes may be like your dad's. You may have the same physical features as your brother, but same temperament as your sister. You, I think you get the point. You're not exactly the same, but you have some similar traits. Then think about your cousins. Not the Ethiopian version of the cousins, but, you know, the real related cousins, the, the, the cousins of related with your uncles and aunts. You may not have as many features in common with them as you would with your siblings, but you're likely to find similarities with them than you would with a stranger from the street. Same thing is true with languages. Some languages have similar linguistic features when compared with others. Identifying these common features allow families of languages to be studied together. All this to say 
that the Ago language, which we said was from the Cushitic family, encompassed different features linguistically from the Ge'ez language, which was, of course, from the Semitic family, spoken by the Aksumites. You see? During the reign of Aksum, there was a group of people who spoke a different language than the rulers who ruled after the Aksumites. And it was this new group of people who spoke the Ago language who, who would later go on to rule the country. Now, here's the key point here. Speaking a different language does not necessarily mean they were ethnically different from each other. Other than language, it's not really clear how else they differed. In fact, as you can imagine, these two distinct groups did not remain isolated. Over the years, these societies started to interact with each other and assimilate. This process ultimately resulted in a process known as pedigenization. This phenomenon takes place when two societies who speak a different language come together. Then future languages emerge to carry the characteristics of both societies. This process can take place, however, only when societies come in contact with each other. Now, think, for example, if you're like, what does this all mean? It's like um, we Amharic speakers come to America and we begin to speak English. But then there's also the Amharic embedded within us. So we start inventing words right for example around church circle we say are you soming we turn som which is an amharic word into like we merge it with an english word and we say are you soming right so this is the definition of pedigenization so you're combining two languages and creating new words now imagine several centuries later if that was actually added into a dictionary and even if it happens over and over again languages can emerge from it so it's believed through the interaction of Giz and Ago speaking communities, some of the languages that existed today emerged. For example, the language that people of Tig Tigray speak is a result of interactions that occurred between Cushitic speaking groups and Semitic speakers. Similarly, Amharic, the language the people of Amara, resulted from the interaction between Cushitic and Semitic speaking communities. To put it another way, Using the family tree analogy, the language of Aksum, that is Giz, and Ago are the parents of both Amharic and Tigrinya, thereby making Amharic and Tigrinya brothers and sisters. Here's the point. These two groups have more in common than we think. However, even with the similarities that existed between Aksumites and people of Ago, there were clearly archaeological signs that point to disputes between the two groups. These signs are found in those famous monuments of inscriptions we talked about uh, several episodes ago. If you recall, these monuments often were constructed as political statements. It was a way for an Aksumite king to boast about his achievements, or in this case, boast about the cities he conquered. Well, as you can imagine, the people of Ago did not take Aksum's desire to conquer them easily. What nation would? Of course, they fought against them. And as a result, all the evidence discovered about this community points to the Ago as one of the culturally most creative people 
on the entire continent. By the way, that's a quote from a, a, a scholar in Ethiopian studies. Um, the reason why we can assume that the Aksumites came in contact with Ago, it's because of this great ability for them to be creative. In fact, um, the list of contribution that Ago had to that uh, region uh, in the Eastern Africa continues. Things like cereal grains, such as teif, uh, root crops, such as the Abyssinian uh, bananas, leaf and, and stock vegetables and condiments like coffee, oil and dye plants and uh, much, much more. Understandably, when the Aksumite Empire were expanding its territories, there were some frictions between these two groups. The fact that the people of Ago are listed in these ancient monuments suggests that they were the object of intensive wars and conquests led from the north against them. Eventually, however, the people of Ago adopted and later assimilated with the people of Aksum and even embraced the Christian Orthodox faith as it was introduced to them. These events following the 10th century are highly unclear. The only two points scholars can come to a consensus on are, number one, the Aksumites were in power until about the turn of the first millennium. Number two, the people of Ago, that is possibly where we get the term Zagwe from, the Zagwe dynasty, assumed the leadership position after them. When it comes to to the time period of their ascendancy to power, the celebrated Ethiopic scholar Conti Rossini assumes the people of Ago to have taken the throne sometime in the middle of the 12th century. Now, let me just stop here and remind you who this Conti Rossini is. This is the second time we're mentioning him. I promise he will be the center of focus in our future uh, podcast. But remember this name, Carlo Conti Rossini. He's a celebrated scholar who says that they took the throne, this Ago people, uh, assumed the throne after Aksumites in the middle of the 12th century. Now, he's able to determine this based on a letter the king of Ago presumably wrote to the patriarch and ruler Al-Adil ibn al-Salar, or of Egypt as recorded in the history of patriarch Johannes, in uh, 1147 through uh, 67. As a reminder, according to the tradition established previously, Ethiopians would have to request church officials and rulers of Egypt to send an archbishop to the land of Ethiopia. Remember, this is what we talked about in the previous or, or two podcasts ago. According to this celebrated Italian scholar, Carlo Conti Rossini, this letter likely points to the fact that the Egyptian bishop was not happy with the new king who had emerged from a different tribe or group. Conti Rossini, again, a celebrated Italian scholar, suggests that after the king occupied the kingdom, the Egyptian metropolitan, that is the bishop, stood in the way of the uh, new group, apparently this letter in question was written by the king of Ethiopia as a protest against the Egyptian bishop who refused to recognize the Ethiopian king's authority. Now, if we're to accept Conti Rossini's proposal, 
it would mean this time period was likely the inception of what would later be known as the Zagwe dynasty. And people suggest, some people suggest, Zagwe comes from the Zagwe, literally, of Ago speaking, hence Zagwe dynasty. <clears throat> now, uh, I should mention that if you are, you know, studying history of Ethiopia, generally speaking, Ethiopian history is broken up to the Aksumite era, and that is, um, you know, starting from 1st, 2nd century, all the way to about uh, 7th, 8th, 9th century, depending on who you talk to. And then uh, after that, it is the Zagwe dynasty, and the people who ruled after Ago are, are known as the Zagwe dynasty. And then uh, starting from uh, late 13th century, uh, on it's known as the Solomonic dynasty. We're going to talk about this, but now we are getting at the Zagwe dynasty. Apparently, uh, like we said, they had some type of feud with the Aksumite kingdom, but then they kind of assimilated and accepted the Christian kingdom. And uh, later on, we have this Zagwe dynasty coming in. Um, now, as a result, the official Ethiopian tradition claims the dynasty lasted for about three centuries, making the start of the dynasty before the turn of the first millennium. Now, I'm not really concerned about when this dynasty began. We're not really here to talk about those details. We'll leave that to the historians. But uh, the idea is, again, very little is known about the specific details as to how they came into power. Uh, but it's worth mentioning, one theory is the obvious. They fought against the Aksumites and finally declared victory. The second is the exact opposite. Several traditions within the Ethiopian tradition suggest that the last king of Aksum was married to a woman whose blood was from the people of Ago. This union established a peaceful transfer of power from Aksum to Zagwe. It is worthy to note, however, that a significant amount of scholarship has favored the theory involving conflict over harmony and peace. Whatever the case may have been, the Aksumites were no longer in charge of Ethiopia, and the land of the, uh, and instead there was a new group of people from the lineage of Ago that was ready to rule the country. Now, this new group's rise to power was undoubtedly difficult. And we get a sense of possible indications of tribal feuds from the early times. Yes, Ethiopians did awesome things, but they likely had their internal conflicts. And these possible internal conflicts, just as much as all of the great achievements that helped shape Ethiopia to what it is today, were also playing a role into solidifying Ethiopia's history. Speaking of achievements, the Zagwe dynasty had many of them. Perhaps the most notable is the stamp left behind the great King Lalibela. Of course, we all heard of this King Lalibela, and he was from this Zagwe dynasty. This king who would go on to be consecrated as a saint is believed to have constructed numerous churches with the assistance of angels. This is a key point that I'm going to come back to later. Obviously, we all have heard of King Laribela. He is a saint, he's a king, and he's been consecrated as a saint, and uh, he's, you know, um, accredited to constructing numerous churches. And certainly, anyone who has visited the churches of Laribela can testify they're true, they're truly angelic. And these structures are unique in that they were built by carving the rocks in the shape of a church. 
Perhaps because of this unique style or through divine intervention, the churches have managed to withstand damage that resulted from fires, invaders, and natural aging process such as deterioration of the structure. According to the Ethiopian tradition, God revealed to Laribala in a dream he was to build a city in the likeness of Jerusalem. And sure enough, Lalibala and others from the dynasty went to build these fascinating churches, but their legacy in Ethiopia would come to an unexpected halt. Sadly for this dynasty, as mysterious as their ascendancy to the throne was, so was their fall. Taddasa points to the feud that ensued between the sons of Lalibala. He writes, Yitbarak and the king's nephew, Laab, uh, La possible a bridge version of Nakoto Laab, uh, as a possible catalyst for the downfall of the dynasty. Yitbarak, the biological son of Laribala, was the likely candidate for succeeding his father's throne. However, there are hagiographical accounts, that is the Gadlat, that give an unexpected account of Nakoto Laab's journey to becoming king. In these sources, Queen Musk al-Kibra convinced her husband, King Lalibala, to appoint Nakuto Laab to the throne. One of the manuscripts talks about this uh, feud in the following way. Musk al-Kibra, that's the wife, said to the king, command them to bring your child, Nakuto Laab. And they brought him, keep in mind, when it's saying child, it's talking about the nephew. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, bring this up later on as well. And they brought him to her and had him stand before him, that is the, the king. And Lalibala said to the child, or Nakutolaab, take my kingdom during my lifetime. And the child Nakutolaab said, but I do not want a kingdom without your blessing. And the king Lalibala said to him, sit upon my kingdom and my throne and as for my blessing, may it be upon you. It is worth mentioning again, if you missed it, that Maskal Kabra, when Maskal Kabra is saying, bring your child, she's talking about Nakutulaab, who is likely the nephew of King Lalibala and not his biological son. The phrase, your child here, may instead be alluding to a spiritual relationship the two had, that is, Lalibala being the spiritual father of Nakutulaab. More importantly, according to other sources, the expected child, Yitvarek, is said to have been the one to rule after his dad. These altering descriptions of history clearly suggest there was trouble in paradise. The cousins of Yutbarak and Nakutolab were likely competing for the throne. A more detailed analysis of the historical documents suggests that after the death of Lalibala, Nakutolab appeared to have the upper hand over his cousin by temp temporarily gaining control over the country. But soon after, it would be Yutbarak and not his cousin, who would be victorious. I know, I'm talking about a lot of stuff, and it's getting a bit confusing. But stay with me, because I promise uh, it's worth uh, paying attention to. So we have these two cousins who are fighting for the throne. Now, while Yitbarak and Nakutola were busy having family feuds, a strong group of people were plotting against the dynasty of Zagwe. Part of the interest in overthrowing Zagwe stemmed from the supposed translation of the famous Kvrnegas from an Arabic source that is for Laga into the Ethiopian during the time of Lalibala. 
Now, if you guys don't know what Cabrera Negus is, obviously it has a large role to play in Ethiopia, but we simply cannot be able to discuss in detail the content of this great work nor its significance in society. But as you may know, the Kavranagas is the primary source for the Ethiopian Orthodox Swahiri Church's teachings of how the Ark of the Covenant entered Ethiopia. But since there's also many writings uh, offered on Kavranagas, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this text. Instead, I'm particularly um, drawn to the text about the last section, that is the colophon that's found in the Kabranegas. So if you go and find the Kabranegas, the original or the the earliest copy that we have, at the end of the account of how the Ark of the Covenant entered Ethiopia, there is a last section written in Arabic that reads in part, and went out in the days of Zagwe, and they did not translate it because this book says, those who reign not being Israelites are transgressors of the law. Had they been of the kingdom of Israel, they would have edited or translated it. This is the point. This last statement that's found in Kabranegas discredits the legitimacy of Zagwe's dynasty because of the pres presumed fact that they were not of Israel descent. One of the sections of Kabranegast offers a genealogy of kings, beginning with the child of King Solomon and finishing with King Caleb. And we talked about Caleb last time. The understanding was that the previous Aksumites descended from Caleb and thus were in turn descendants of Israel, hence being worthy to rule Ethiopia. But if you remember... The Zagwe, that is the people of Ago, were supposedly of a different origin than the people of Aksum, and thus were not descendants of Solomon. Although the rulers of Zagwe were said to have claimed lineage from the biblical figure Moses, the Aksumites claimed to be related to the king, the king Solomon, their, the, ergo being more uh, kind of deserving of the throne. For this reason, they were perceived to have been better suited to rule the empire than the rulers of Zagwe. At the time the Kibranegas was being translated, anti-Zagwe movements were taking place in Tigray and Amhara. Of course, this is a quotation from Taddeza Tamrat. If you guys don't know who Taddeza Tamrat is, he's considered to be a giant in, in Ethiopian studies. And the great Taddeus has dedicated an entire section in his book, Church and State in Ethiopia, a classical book to describing how preparations were being made in these regions to take power away from the Zagwe dynasty. From the Amhara tribe emerged Yukuno Amalak, a man who had his eyes on the throne. In addition to being from the tribe of Amhara, some accounts claim he was related to the last king of Aksum Dilnaud. This meant by even Kavranegas' standard, he was deserving of the throne, since Yukunno Amlak's relationship with Dilnaud and thereby King Caleb meant he was a descendant of Israel's King Solomon. Having met the requirement for the kingship, he began to prepare to take power. Through a long series of events, too long to list here, per Taddeus' account, 
Tadesa being the Ethiopian giant historian, Yukuno Amlak was able to assemble his Amhara troops and attack and kill the Zagwe king. Yukuno Amlak effectively ended the Zagwe dynasty and claimed to have continued the Solomonic lineage of the Aksumite reign. Yukuno Amlak, therefore, is considered to be the first king of what would be later called the Solomonic dynasty. Now, I'm going to stop here for today. But these are some questions to ask yourself. What does this mean? Recently, we've been hearing a lot of anti-Amhara rhetoric saying throughout history, Amharans, you know, they've done things and, and uh, you know, subjugated people and, 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 and these type of kind of statements. So is it true? Yukuno Amalak assembled his Amhara troops, and this is being said by one of the leading scholars of Ethiopian history. He went down, he marched over to the to the Zagwe dynasty and, and killed everybody inside and, and ruled. So does that mean these ethnic feuds really do stem from the 13th century? I'm, I'm on the 13th century. Well, stay tuned and find out what the rest of the history is looks like i hope you guys learned something and i'll see you guys next time i want to encourage everybody to buy my book if you haven't done so already make sure to follow me on instagram at d or at twitter at dawit mulina six if you want to become a patron you may do so by going to patreon.podbean.com once again i'll see you guys next time